You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Before the wars in Middle-earth, before the battles of Narnia, there was a war in Europe, the Great War, the war to end war, that fell tragically short of that dream of peace and left men and nations broken in body and soul. Two young English army officers were caught up in this storm of war, C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. Yet by a strange chance, if chance it was, the young men emerged from the horror of the trenches with some flicker of hope still gleaming. They had, as Joe Lacanti puts it, rediscovered faith, friendship, and heroism in the cataclysm. I'm David Grubbs, your host for this episode of Christian Humanist Profiles, and with us today is Dr. Joe Lacanti, Associate Professor of History at King's College in New York City and author of A Hobbit, A Wardrobe, and A Great War published by Nelson Books. Welcome to Christian Humanist Profiles, Dr. Lacanti. Thanks so much for having me, uh, David. Great to be with you. Well, we'll dive right into it. What led you to the project of this particular book? What are you trying to accomplish in it? Well, thank you for that. And uh, I never intended to write a book about uh, Belkin and Lewis. I figured it was such a cottage industry of biographies, and I've benefited from many of them. But when I read a biography of Tolkien and realized for the first time that he fought in the First World War, that got me thinking because I knew that Lewis had fought in the war. I didn't realize uh, Tolkien as well. And then the little light goes off in your in your mind. We've got these two amazing authors who have both endured the trenches of the First World War. They meet at Oxford, they become great friends, and then they go on to write these epic tales of heroism, sacrifice, valor, where war is at the center of their stories. So you just have to start to imagine and wonder how might the furnace of the uh, of the Western Front and all the death and destruction that went with it, how might that have influenced their literary imagination? And that's what the book sets out to do, to explore. Excellent. Well, you begin the book with a survey of European country, uh, the survey of European culture leading up to the Great War especially the dominant ideas and the culture-shaping movements, which I thought was particularly interesting. Uh, other biographies, as you mentioned, there is a cottage industry around the Inklings, but most of the biographies are looking at the history to understand the man. But in this particular case, you, you're very much starting with the history. So it seems that this time before the Great War was a very optimistic time, and yet you title your first chapter, The Funeral of a Great Myth. So how did those dominant forces that you discuss that promised hope lead to a war of such enormous scope and scale? Yeah, that's a fabulous question, and I think it's not well understood and appreciated, uh, particularly here in the United States for all kinds of reasons we get into. But if you think about what the mood was, the intellectual uh, mood, psychological mood in the late 19th, early 20th centuries, this dominant idea of progress, human progress, that uh, tech, because of technology, the Industrial Revolution, all these inventions that are, that are coming online for the first time at the turn of the century, the automobile, Einstein gives us his theory of relativity, I think, in 1905. It's the idea that not only is man improving in a technological sense, a scientific sense, medical discoveries, but that man himself, his nature, is improving and can be improved, say, even through eugenics, the early eugenics movement uh, in the 19th, uh, beginning of the 20th century. Uh, so not only are we improving technologically, scientifically, but morally and spiritually. And so the, 
the the motif here is a it, it's an idea of unremitting progress. And C.S. Lewis, it's fascinating when you read some of his letters and reflections. He was caught up in this in this myth uh, himself. Uh, he says, reflecting uh, uh, years later, he says, "I grew up believing in this myth, and have felt and still feel its almost perfect grandeur. It's one of the most moving and satisfying world dramas which has ever been imagined. Mm. This powerful idea that we are ascending, we are morally, spiritually ascended, uh, and almost nothing can stop it." Uh, and that idea is very powerful. It helps to uh, create the incredible disillusionment, which we can talk about uh, after the war, because this idea of progress, of course, just runs straight into the barbed wire, the mortars, the machine guns, the poison gas, uh, which defines the First World War. Mm. Well, that's one of the things that I enjoyed most about uh, most about the beginning of this war, and really throughout the or, uh, the beginning of this book and throughout the whole the whole project is that it, it's very clear that you're coming at this as a historian and not mainly as uh, not mainly as a biographer. You're really interested in, in the window into um, this moment in history. And uh, yeah, I, I, I thought, I thought that was really effective. Well, I appreciate that. I yeah, appreciate that, David, because I think there is a gap, if you will, in the scholarship on, on Tolkien and Lewis in, in that way. And maybe kind of, kind of answering your earlier question, mm. uh, my appreciation for their achievement, uh, both these men as writers, it deepened significantly as I just got into the history, the context, what they were up against, uh, not only surviving the war, but then in the aftermath of the war. So yeah, we, we need the historian's perspective, I think, on, on these two men. Yeah, Excellent. One of the things you focus on, too, towards the beginning is England's, uh, England's per- and, and other nations as well, but you know, Tolkien and Lewis are from England, so we'll look there. Uh, their confident attitude as they went into the war, not only in England's abilities to wage a war successfully, but also in the rightness of her cause. Yes. Can you sketch out for a moment the pro-war fervor at the time, especially its its patriotic and religious forms? Yeah, excellent question. And uh, just uh, speaking broadly for a moment, you know, in 1914, because of this myth of progress, I, I think, the, the idea was, you know, the next war, it'll be a short, tidy war. It'll be over quickly. The, the men were told, marching off in 1914, you'll be home before the leaves fall from the trees. It'll just be over in a few months, and everything will be better. Uh, and I think many of the, uh, the ministers especially, uh, there were, there were the religious leaders and others, particularly with the, the democracies, as, as Germany began to demonstrate a kind of ruthlessness in the early months of the war, well, the German Kaiser became the Antichrist, mm. uh, and, and the intense vilification of, of, of the German people and the, and the German leadership. That was certainly true among the Allied people. But that worked both ways, the way the Germans also then vilified uh, the Western nations. So that was happening, I think you could say, at, at the level of religious leadership and even political leadership, that religious language, mm. turning the First World War into a kind of Armageddon, the war to end all wars, right? Uh, I think for the ordinary man in the trenches, though, it was it was pretty different. It was really a matter of survival, especially after you got really probably even six months into that war. And certainly by the time Tolkien and Lewis entered the war, 1916, 1917, where you have millions of men dead, and there's no clear, easy solution to the thing. Mm. They are really in a deadlock, and no one knows how to get out. So by the time these two men enter, uh, Tolkien and Lewis, they enter as reluctant re- recruits, not enthusiastic, 
holy war is by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, Lewis, especially, is really hoping the war is going to be over before he is kind of compelled to enlist because he was born in, in Northern Ireland, and so he wasn't subject initially to, to the draft, but he wasn't going to be left out. He, he didn't want to be just be drafted against his will. That was a, you know, just a code of honor. You were going to join those, those, those men eventually, but they were both trying to put it off as long as possible as you read their, uh, uh, their letters and their reflections on it. So it sounds as if Tolkien and Lewis were not fitting really well into that sort of pre-war and early war attitude. They weren't really caught up. Well, I mean, you, you mentioned that Lewis Lewis talked about having been caught up in the pre-war sort of optimism of progress, but certainly they're not both um, headed headed in the same direction in terms of patriotism in that pro-war fervor. Um, no, they're not. I mean, I think being Englishmen and, and England's view of its of its entry into the war was this is this was a just war. England had made promises to Belgium. Uh, England had a had a, a a national interest and a moral interest, you could argue, in preventing Germany and a combination of of states allied with Germany from dominating the European continent. That was the huge thing mm. in, in the in the 19th and early 20th centuries. Keep any single nation or combination of nations from dominating the European continent. Nobody wanted, uh, among the Western democracies, nobody wanted an autocratic Germany mm. to dominate the continent. So Britain had a, had, a, had a valid national interest, you could argue, in getting into the war. And let's face it, uh, the war is its not an immediate threat to, to Britain's national interests or, or to its national security, put it that way. It's all fought in France and uh, in Germany and elsewhere in the continent. There's, there's no fighting in Great Britain per se, so you're sending your British soldiers overseas mm. to try to defend not only national interests, but what they really believe are going to be the long-term interests of Europe and of Western civilization. That's the way the, the Brits, at least, uh, view their entry into the war. And I think Tolkien and Lewis both shared that view as, as young soldiers and, and held on to that idea, uh, even in the aftermath of the war. Mm. One of the things that you get into is the uh, the importance of their educations or their literary tastes uh, before the war, what they carry into the war, uh, equipping them, I guess, to think critically about that spirit of the times. Could you yeah. visit, visit some of that uh, some of that material? Yeah, excellent uh, question, David. And this is, I'm, I tend to be out of my depth on questions like this because I'm not a professor of literature, I'm an historian, but... Uh, there were certain works that were very important to both these men, part of their own education there in England at the turn of the century. Uh, Tolkien is very influenced and taken by Beowulf, this, this medieval war story. Mm. Uh, for Lewis, it's the Aeneid, uh, the founding myth of Rome. And when you think about these stories, uh, as you pour over them, <laughs> this is war in all of its horror, not just its glory, mm. but, the, but the grief and the suffering and the death and the misery. Uh, and so there's, there's a realism to those works, a bitter realism to war, uh, that I think uh, these men bring into their own writings. Tolkien in, in The Lord of the Rings and Lewis in The Chronicles of Narnia, both those men, uh, they're very frank about uh, the, the anxiety of the, of the soldier in combat, the weakness from, uh, that, that they face, the moral weakness, the difficult decisions, the loss of friends, the deprivations. I mean, that's part of, I think, the enduring appeal of their works is, is the realism of, bo- of, of, both their, uh, of both their literary imaginations. Mm. In your subtitle, you, you mention friendship as being one of the important uh, aspects of Tolkien and Lewis's uh, Great War experience. And yeah. clearly they shared 
they shared a great capacity for friendship. We see it in their school days before the war. They see it, you see it after the war in their inkling circle, but other groups that they ran in. But you're right, things were different in terms of friendship uh, during wartime for both of them. How, yeah. How did their friendships lead them to experience the war differently? How, did the war lead them to think about friendship differently? Excellent questions, really. You know, what was unique among the British recruits was that they, uh, they would enlist uh, as a group of friends. They called them the PALS, P-A-L-S, battalions. Mm. Entire towns or portions of towns, uh, men who knew each other, maybe they were related, maybe they weren't, they would enlist together. Uh, they wanted to fight alongside their friends. And it was the same uh, for Tolkien and Lewis as best they could. That they wanted their friends around them. Uh, and we tend to forget this because we have this idea of the band of brothers from the Second World War, which we probably romanticize that a bit. We don't tend to think about the First World War in the same way, and I think maybe that's a mistake because hmm. the men who fought alongside each other uh, in the trenches of the First World War, everything they endured, that produced an intense sense of comradeship, as, as it does for every war veteran, uh, trying to, to, to watch out for each other, take care of each other being willing to lay down your life uh, for your fellow soldier. That, those men experienced that very thing. And it's, there's no question in, the, in my mind, and they're clear about it themselves. They wanted to recapture something like that, that feeling of intense comradeship and friendship once they were out of the war. And I think that helps to explain this group that we all now know about, for those of us who know Tolkien and Lewis, the Inklings, mm. those who dabble in ink, the, the group of Christian men who came together at Oxford in the 1930s, Lewis and Tolkien were the nucleus of that group, uh, and I think, and, and many of the people who participated were actually a war veterans themselves. Uh, they are the Inklings. They had war experience. They were combat veterans. Uh, they wanted to recapture something like that, but and to give it a good and noble end, mm. uh, which was to help help each other to become the best writers and thinkers that they could be. That's a pretty noble task. I wish we had more of that now in our own uh, society, in our own Christian circles or, or circles outside of Christianity. It's a great, it's a great endeavor, that, that friendship for a noble task. Well, it, it certainly deepens the, the kinds of friendships and the kinds of relationships that you see in their writings as well. It makes, the, it makes those much more important in a way that we might not otherwise um, think about them. Yeah. Yeah, it's really true, David. And you think about the Lord of the Rings, that the Fellowship of the Ring, it's called a fellowship, mm. right, because of these, these relationships. It's no accident that at the moral center of the story, really, is this is these band of brothers, these these various creatures, the hobbits and the, uh, and the, and the dwarves, uh, all coming together uh, in this common task to destroy the Ring of Power. And for Lewis's stories, if you think about it, the Chronicles of Narnia, it really could be said that friendship replaces romance as the preeminent expression of love in mm -hmm. Lewis's stories. There's romance there, and that's always fun to read, but it's the friendships uh, between the children, the Narnians, and of course the friendships that, you de that they all develop with Aslan uh, mm -hmm. that really take center stage in the stories. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right on that one. Um, what I, I remember as a kid being uh, reading the horse and his boy in particular, and you have the friendship between Shasta, later core, um, Shasta and, and Erebus, the Calarmine girl. Yes. At which yes. they eventually do get married, but the at the yes. end of the book it says they get married because they'd gotten so used to having fights and making up again. 
<laughs> yes, I love that line too. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. But it all starts. Yeah, they start out very contentious, though, don't they? Yeah. In the story, and they learn to appreciate each other, and that that friendship just deepens, doesn't it, into romantic love? Yeah, it's it's beautiful. Yeah. Well, one of your partic- the particular strengths of your book for me was the depiction, um, especially through uh, accounts from single soldiers, as well as just you know sort of larger scale uh, observations about about history in terms of you know numbers of deaths and woundings in a particular battle but also that yeah. that soldier boots on the ground perspective um is i i was really struck by your book's depiction of just the awful and soul crushing suffering and destruction in the great war um both for yeah. the soldiers and even just for the land itself um Tolkien's fiction often gets dismissed as glorifying or romanticizing war and violence. I think that's a, I think that's too easily, uh, too easily said. But I think you show a pretty clear connection between Tolkien and Lewis's personal experiences in the war, and the ways that they write about war. So, what did they personally endure in the trenches, as yeah. you say? And where do we see that working out in their books, in details, and I guess in attitudes as well? Yeah, those are fabulous questions. And let's just take a minute to unpack it. Uh, they both go into the war as a, uh, in the British Expeditionary Force as, uh, as lieutenant, second lieutenant. Uh, Tolkien is a signals officer, so he's not always right at the front line, but he is often under fire, and he, and he will be in the front line in various places. But he'll, he'll experience about six months of pretty intensive of warfare, of being directly under fire, uh, and he will lose almost all of his close friends uh, in the war. And it'll be the same for Lewis. Uh, all, virtually all of his close friends perish in, in, in the conflict. And Lewis, he's in a battle there in 1917. A mortar shell goes off, probably friendly fire, kills the sergeant standing not very far away from him, and, and wounds him in three places. That takes him out of the war. Uh, Tolkien was taken out of war by trench fever. It was a pretty common thing to get in the trenches, because if you think about those trenches, both those men spent a lot of time in the trenches. Uh, it's the iconic symbol of the war, isn't it? The, uh, the muddy trench. And if you think about what's happening in those trenches, they're filling up with water. They can't drain them very well. There are literally dead bodies in the water. They may be in that trench. They don't, they, they don't have a chance to, to bury because of the constant onslaught. You can imagine the rats and, and, and the stench. So to endure trench warfare, as so many men, millions of men literally did, this is a rite of passage, but it was, it was horrifying. Uh, and if you think about uh, Tolkien's uh, the, uh, story there in The Lord of the Rings, the dead marshes, when Sam and Frodo are on their way trying to destroy the ring, mm. take it to its final destination, and they encounter the dead marshes. And what they encounter in the dead marshes are these, these bodies, Right, these dead bodies uh, that that Sam and Frodo encounter, and uh, war historian Martin Gilbert, who accidentally uh, wound up in a conversation with Tolkien and interviewed him about his experiences. I think this is in the early 1960s. Interviews him about his experiences in war, and and Gilbert says, a great World War One, World War Two historian, Martin Gilbert says Tolkien's description of the dead marshes it matches perfectly what men would have experienced at the Battle of the Somme there mm. in France. So there is a realism to both their writings. Tolkien, it's, it's so vivid and, and, and graphic and horrifying in many ways. Uh, Lewis is a little bit more restrained, isn't he? I mean, mm-hmm. he has to be because he's writing for children. 
so he's going to be more restrained. But, you know, think about the scene, for example, in um, in Prince Caspian with Reapy Cheap. You know, we all love mm. Reapy Cheap. It's this incredibly brave, recklessly brave mouse uh, <laughs> out there in the battle, uh, described in Prince Caspian as, after one of these battles, little better than a damp heap of fur, more dead than alive, gashed with innumerable wounds, one paw crushed, and where his tail had been, a bandaged stump. Now think about that for a minute. If you'd served in the First World War and you think about some of the images, there is hardly a more poignant reminder of suffering during that war mm. than the images of the, the soldier amputees limping from a dugout. I mean, I think that's what, I can't prove this, but I think that's what Lewis had in his mind with that image of Reapicheep. Mm. I mean, it's just so poignant and horrifying what men had to endure and the, the lost limbs. You couldn't have missed it. You couldn't have missed that if you were a soldier, uh, missed seeing that. Uh, during that war. And I think images like that just work their way almost unconsciously uh, into their writings. Hmm. One of the things that you made me uh, think about and pay attention to in, dis in discussing this particular uh, aspect of the war's influence on them is how important the post-battle body count is. Um, in both Tolkien and Lewis, when they describe a battle going through the list of who has survived and who has died, and how did they die. Mm. Um, mm. It's enormously important at the end of The Hobbit, enormously important in The Lord of the Rings. Yes. Um, yes. You, you brought up Prince Caspian. That, uh, that post-battle uh, picking, uh, picking up the pieces, literally, sometimes, yes. uh, is... Uh, it's something that's so important to them that often, um, I think, gets glossed over in fantasy film mm. or imaginative. Yes. You know, comic book movies don't linger over the massive body count afterwards, but Tolkien and Lewis will not yes. let you ignore it. You know, that's a beautiful point you made, David, and I don't think I made that in the book, but I... <laughs> so if there's a version, that's going to have to make its way in, and I will certainly credit you for reminding me of this. <laughs> Uh, it, it is a remarkable feature of their works, and it speaks to the realism that they had, the realism mm. of the war, their own personal experience. And think about what's going on in Europe in the post-war years, mm. how Europe is remembering the First World War. Mm. How's it doing it? Well, it's uh, uh, memorials and monuments and celebrations mm. uh, uh, and, and commemorations. You can't travel, and I've traveled a fair amount in Europe, you can't travel to the smallest village uh, in any European place you will find a, a World War One memorial where my grandfathers uh, were born, and, and one of my grandfathers fought in the First World War. He's come from a little town outside of Bari in southern Italy, a little town called Petrito. And you go to Petrito, and there it is. There's a World War One memorial. And my other grandfather, who was born, also born in Italy, a little island of Naples, a little island called Vento Den. There's 300 people on the island of Vento, of Vento Den. Sure enough, there is a World War I memorial in the center of the main piazza of that town. Mm. So Europe remembered the war. We as Americans, of course, also have a memorial, but because it was fought on that continent, it so affected an entire generation. And they spent really the next 10, 15 years building uh, cemeteries, memorials, mm. uh, and it's part of the fabric of European life in really an amazing way. That's certainly influenced Tolkien and Lewis. Uh, in in their writings, in their works, I mean, they liberally. You're right. They draw attention to each of the fallen. Yeah. Mm. 
Well, over here in uh, the United States, it's uh, we have, in some senses, the luxury of being almost Shire-like in our removal from um, from yes. those wars. But um, yes. in Europe is Gondor. They they can't forget. Well, the Great War was, uh, and not not only did many people die, but it was also uh, the death knell for idealism. Uh, idealism, as you as you point out, and. Um, Certainly many writers during and after the war show a profound disillusionment in their work. I'm thinking about, you know, some of the great World War I soldier poets and, um, and other writers after the war. Yeah. But you argue, you argue that Tolkien and Lewis, though they're, they're sobered in some important ways, but they nonetheless are trying to preserve some of those same particular ideals that were lost in their writing. So, could you walk through, and, and you can spend as long as you want on this, because this is the, this is the bulk of your book. <laughs> what <laughs> ideals had the West lost faith in, and how do Lewis and Tolkien try to keep that faith alive in whichever of those ideals you want to, you want to point to? Yeah, it's a huge, it's a huge question, David, and it really is kind of near the, it's kind of near the narrative heart of, of, the, of my book. Uh, which is part of how I've come to appreciate your achievement uh, in a way I hadn't before. When you when you realize what the West seemed to lose, it lost its innocence, if you will, mm. in the First World War. And the watchword is disillusionment. It, that is the watchword, disillusionment in the 1920s and even into the 1930s. With the ideals of the West, with the idea of democracy, uh, certainly with the idea of faith, and we'll get to that in a minute, but just think about the, uh, the ideologies that arise in the exhaustion of these democracies after the First World War. It is not an accident now that people are turning to all kinds of alternative worldviews and ideologies, namely communism, fascism, uh, fascism uh, and eugenics. They're all coming into their own in, in the 1920s because of the exhaustion now of following the First World War, a deep disillusionment with the ideals of the West. And particularly, if you think about it, supposedly Christian Europe or Christian civilization, it's these quote-unquote Christian nations that have been engaged in what you might just consider a massive suicide pact, mutual suicide pact. Mm. Uh, and so there are so many authors, yes, certainly the intellectuals and artists, uh, who come out of that and think something is deeply wrong uh, with our culture and our society. And you look at the book titles that come out in the 1920s and 30s. You know, Spengler's The Decline of the West comes out 19, I think, 26, 27, 28. Uh, books, book titles like The Twilight of the White Races, well, you know, Will Civilization Survive? These are the titles. I've got some of them on my bookshelf over here now. These are the book titles that are coming out uh, in the 1920s because of this deep disillusionment. There's a quote I'll read you, uh, which so typifies, I think, where the, where the culture was, where elite culture and academic culture was, literary culture. The Bloomsbury set uh, in London, very uh, kind of highbrow literary set, and uh, Virginia Woolf was a member of that. T.S. Eliot was a member until he converted to kind of Anglo-Catholic Christianity. And this just sends Virginia Woolf into a frenzy uh, <laughs> of, of indignation as she writes one of her friends, and here's what she says, I've had a most shameful and distressing interview with dear Tom Eliot, T.S. Eliot, who may be called dead to us all from this day forward. He's become an Anglo-Catholic believer in God and immortality, and goes to church. I was shocked. A corpse would seem to me more credible than it is. I mean, there's something obscene in a living person sitting by the fire and believing in God. Wow. 
<laughs> I mean, that, and that's in, in the 1930s, 19, what is it, 27, yeah, 1927. Yeah. I am that's a little where, afraid of Virginia Woolf now. <laughs> well said, well said. There's reasons to be afraid. I mean, if they, you think about the kind of condescension in that, of course. Yeah. Um, but that, that is the mood in the intellectual set in the 1920s, right? And it doesn't really get much better in the 1930s. But part of their achievement of Tolkien and Lewis, yes, uh, they're going to recover a, a Christian sensibility, no question about it. But one of the first tasks they have, it seems to me, uh, is even to recover the idea of, of virtue. Uh, that there are there are deep moral truths to this universe that we cannot abandon, transcendent moral truths. Before you even get to Christianity, I think for Tolkien and Lewis, you have to recover that idea that mm-hmm. men and women they they have moral agency, uh, they are moral beings, uh, and there is a moral code to the universe. And uh, David, I think part of the reason that idea was so blown away or, or weakened uh, uh, in the aftermath. And the technology has something to do with this. The technology of war, the industrialized slaughter of the First World War, Mm. it really undermined the idea of human agency and human choice. Because you don't have these grand cavalry charges across across a field, all great opportunities for heroism and all the rest of it. Instead, what you have uh, is you have the mortar Mm. and the machine gun and the tank. Uh, and p- put an individual into that, and men and women, be, be, uh, mostly men, of course, being treated as fodder uh, in, into that machinery. You know, why, why were they building trenches in the first place? Because you have these long-range mortars now that can go hundreds, thousands of yards, a mile or two, uh, and strike a soldier or a regiment, and that you don't even know what's hit you. Mm. So the, the dehumanization of warfare, uh, the industrial slaughter of that war, was something really new. Uh, in the history of mankind, certainly in the history of the West. So that whole idea, back to the point, moral agency, uh, men and women having moral choices, being made in the image of a moral God, that concept itself itself is being uh, profoundly eroded, uh, under attack throughout the 1920s, uh, not only through philosophy, science, psychology, uh, is attacking that idea. And I think Tolkien and Lewis, because of their Christian faith, they're going to have to respond to it, in, in a very strong, powerful way, and I think that's what they do in their writings. Mm. As you as you're talking, I'm thinking about uh, you know because I, I I love Lewis, but Tolkien is uh, Tolkien is where my heart lies. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking of moments uh, like when Aemer uh, uh, in the Two Towers asked Aragorn, "How is how is a man to judge?" Yes. What is the right or wrong thing to do in this time? And Aragorn answers, yes. the way you would at any other time. Time doesn't change it. Culture doesn't change it. Yes. Um, and that's yes. that's an answer that the West had largely lost faith in. So that, you know, Tolkien is saying something radically countercultural. He's not being just a traditional backward thinker. He's actually speaking in the face of as you point out, in the face of a, a, a tide moving in the other direction. Yes, yes, yes. It's a, it's a wonderful uh, passage you've, you've picked up on, David. Good and ill have not changed since yesteryear, he says, nor are they mm-hmm. one thing among the elves and dwarves and yeah. another among men. It is a man's part to discern them. Wow. I mean, that's, that's the wisdom, it seems to me, of a long uh, tradition in the West, mm. particularly with the Judeo-Christian influence that there is a moral narrative 
to all of our lives. And we're either going to participate in that and join the side of decency and goodness and ultimately God, or, or not. We're going to join the other side. And that's part of, the, I think, the enduring appeal of his stories is that every individual, the smallest individual, <laughs> the mouse named Reaper Sheep, the, the, the hobbit, the, the diminutive hobbit, their choices matter in this great moral contest. Mm. Uh, and we cannot remain neutral in that contest. So even the Ents, these, these walking trees, these talking walking trees, the forest, they, 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 they Treebeard, uh, the leader of the Ents, they try to remain neutral out of the fight as long as they can, but then at the end of the day they realize they can't. And mm. then we have the last march of the Ents. So moral neutrality is, is not an option in the universe created by uh, Tolkien and Lewis, which is really, I think, our universe as well, our, our moral landscape. Mm. Uh, it's, it's the landscape that they have described in so many ways. And genius. Uh, their, their use of myth, the language of myth, wrapping their stories in myth, for them, it's not an escape. They're not trying to escape the real world. For Tolkien and Lewis, the real world has a mythic and heroic quality. Because we really are caught up in this in this grand moral contest between good and evil, and the sooner we recognize that, the better. Mm. You mentioned uh, T.S. Eliot's conversion to to Christianity, and uh, especially embracing uh, such an uh, I guess in the in the Virginia Woolf's ideas, uh, I, uh, I, I, such an old fashioned version of it that it's almost offensive. No, actually offensive. <laughs> <laughs> um, you also talk about Lewis's um, conversion, which it's it's a little bit different because Tolkien went into the war a Christian and he came back a Christian. Yes. But the war affected Lewis's um, Lewis's ideas about God very differently uh, than it did Tolkien. Could you walk through it? Walk us through that. Yeah, no, that's a fabulous part of the story, which others certainly have, have documented very thoroughly. Uh, mm. But I, I think it was, the, it was the context of war for me, the First World War, that helped me see this in a new light. And I really believe, not coming out from a, from a faith perspective, from a Christian faith perspective, it, it's hard not to see the hand of providence in, in Lewis's life mm. uh, during that period. Uh, and you can imagine, that you're a young man, you're expecting to be sent into the uh, into the fire of that conflict uh, any month now. And so what he's reading, the people he's meeting, the, the thoughts that he's having, he is on a journey. He's an atheist, he's a militant atheist, uh, when he is uh, 17, 18, uh, 19 year, uh, years old. He arrives on the Western Front on his 19th birthday, mm. and he's an atheist. He's an atheist in a foxhole. But the things that he's been reading have really been affecting him. He picked up... Uh, uh, the 19th century Scottish author George MacDonald and his book Fantasties, while he's waiting on a train station. I think it's the 19. I think it's 1916. He picks up that book, and MacDonald was a Christian author, uh, but MacDonald also clothes his Christian story in, in myth and fantasy, and this captures Lewis's attention as an atheist. And he, mm. he writes later, uh, describing the effect that Fantasties had on him, and he says, "When I read Fantasties, I knew I'd crossed a great frontier." He doesn't mean he became a Christian. But he goes on to say that, that uh, MacDonald somehow baptized his imagination. And I think what he means by that is it introduced to him the idea of goodness, and it made goodness attractive to him. And, and as a young man, in a pretty dark time, he was drifting very much away from that as an atheist. Mm. And it got him to think that there's, some, there's a moral seriousness 
about this religious belief system that he knew McDonald was part of as, as Christian, that, that it, it just caused him to rethink his materialism, to begin to rethink his materialism. So there's moments like that. Uh, and again, the context is war, and, and everything a young man is thinking about going into war. When you're thinking about the big questions of morality and death and uh, God and uh, life and all the rest of it. Mm. So there's that part of the story, which is fascinating. But then, of course, there's a story that is maybe better better known among uh, Lewis fans and Tolkien fans. It's the late-night conversation that Tolkien and Lewis have at Oxford mm. in 1931. Lewis has been moving out of atheism toward theism, but he's not a Christian yet. Uh, and like most uh, intelligent, learned men in his day, he assumes that Christianity is just another myth, like all of the other myths that he has come to actually love, these ancient classical myths, uh, and also more medieval myths, but uh, the, the, the Greek myths of the, of the dying god, uh, the nature god uh, who dies, comes back, uh, comes back to life in some way. He's drawn to those myths uh, as, a, as a student of literature, ancient literature, and medieval literature. And he assumes that Christianity is just another myth like that. There's no truth value, it just some, somehow uh, serves a need. And what Tolkien does in that conversation, which goes until three in the morning, <laughs> Sometimes it's good having conversations after midnight. I like to tell my students over there at the King's College uh, <laughs> in New York. Sometimes those post-midnight conversations are, are a good thing to do. <laughs> and uh, they talk with another guy, Hugo Dyson, mm -hmm. a, a Christian man as well, uh, the three of them. And uh, what Tolkien introduces Lewis to is the idea of, yeah, myths, myths have a sort of power, and, and myths are really a gift that God gives to the human race, because they contain fragments of the truth, truth about the human condition, about our nobility, uh, about heroism, uh, yes, about our frailty, uh, even our, 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 our ugliness, but also the potential for heroism and sacrifice. So there are fragments of the, of the truth in so many of these myths, and what then Tolkien goes on to say is Christianity is the true myth. It's the idea of the the God who becomes a man who dies for sin, it's the myth that became fat. Mm. And that concept rocks Lewis's world. He then writes to his brother Warney, Warren uh, and says, had this conversation with Tolkien and, and Dyson last night, and, and uh, something's happened to me. <laughs> mm. <laughs> the idea of myth becoming fact. I am, I'm, I am on the way to becoming a Christian, and I'll, I'll tell you more about it. Uh, and so it's just an amazing moment. It opens up Lewis's intellectual world. And I think only someone like Tolkien could have spoken into that world in the way that he had. Someone who's mm. an intellectual peer, a peer who, who shared his, his love of literature, of, of, of mythology, but introduced him to the idea of Christianity as the true myth, the myth that became fact. Mm. Decisive for Lewis, utterly decisive, yeah. But also a friend who had shared uh, his war experience. I mean, maybe not side by side, but um, yeah, you know, uh, he Tolkien had seen the same things and yet had come out with his faith intact. Yeah, 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 David. That's a really important point you've just made. You know, Tolkien. Lewis knew that Tolkien was not just some romantic, mm -hmm. but that he'd lived through the same hell that he'd lived through. Mm and that he understood the tragedy of the human condition just the way Lewis understood the tragedy of the human condition. That had been confirmed in the trenches of the First World War, man's depravity, man's inhumanity to man. And yet Tolkien retained this vibrant uh, Catholic Christian faith 
and that impressed Lewis. There's no question about it. There's, a, there's one of his letters where he, he's writing to a friend, Arthur, uh, Arthur Greaves. I think it's Arthur Greaves, and he says, uh, all of my friends, now he's an agnostic, he says, all of my friends have joined the other side. <laughs> Uh, and his friends, of course, are sort of, these are really impressive people. You know, they're learned men. They're they're great writers. They're great thinkers. They've all joined the other side. That that again, that's disrupting his materialist view, hmm. which I see as the grace of God in his life. Yeah, uh, I hadn't realized. See, I'd read. Um, you know, of course, I know "Surprised by Joy." Uh, I it's been a while since I've uh, read a, a full biography of of Lewis. But I had never encountered his war poetry. Um, oh yeah, that you yeah. Uh, and you, you quote some of it in this book, and I had never, I had never heard Lewis speak like this. So when you when you talk about looking at Lewis's con- uh, conversion and seeing, you know, seeing God's hand in it, um, just this uh, one line you have on on ninety three from a, one of his poems. And this is this is C.S. Lewis, right? This is the, the guy that writes yeah. mere Christianity writes. Yeah. Come, let us curse our master ere we die, for all our hopes in endless ruin lie. The good yes. is dead. Let us curse God Most High. That's. Yes. I mean yes. that someone wow. could write that, be there, yes. you know, be at that place in their heart, having come through this yes. war, and then come out the other side of it as as the you know, the Jack Lewis we know. Yes, it's pretty yes, amazing. It, it, send, it sends shivers up your spine, doesn't it, David, to to, to read those lines and that oh. poetry, and and that's the an anti-war poetry mm. that was coming out of that time, and it would have been so easy for Lewis to continue along that route mm-hmm. had not something and someone, I think, intervened. But it was gradual. It was it was a gradual movement toward faith. It involved both the mind, the intellect but also the heart, the imagination. You know, there's that wonderful letter he wrote. This is after he's been wounded now, and he's recovering. He's on his way to recover at a hospital bed uh, in London, I think. And he's writing to his friend, I think, Arthur Greaves. Uh, uh, and he says, can you imagine how I enjoyed my journey to London? First of all, the sight and the smell of the sea that I've missed for so many long and weary months. And then the beautiful green country seen from the train. I think I never enjoyed anything so much as that scenery. All the white in the hedges and the fields, so full of buttercups that in the distance they seem to be of solid gold. And what's going on with Lewis is he's encountering this beauty, this physical beauty, Mm. and it's disrupting his materialism because he goes on to write in that same letter, you see the conviction is gaining ground on me that after all, spirit, with a capital S, does exist. I mm. fancy that there is something, capital S, right outside time and place. Wow. It's you know, the experience of war, the aftermath of war, and now he's safe. And you cannot overstate what the, the emotional high he would have been on as a soldier, mm. being taken out of the war, and now you're safe. And he sees the beauty of the English countryside, and it's, all of this is just it's beginning to unseat his materialism and his atheism, I believe, is what's happening there in that moment it's fantastic well we have walked through um, all the topics that I'd set out but on Christian Humanist Profiles uh, we like to show hospitality and give our guests the last word so my last question is a wild card 
what more would you like our listeners to know or to consider uh, about this topic, uh, about this book, as we bring this interview to a close? Well, thank you uh, for that, David. You've been so generous with your time. It's great to spend this time with you. You know, I think the other thing that really, uh, in some ways, I was reminded of and surprised me as I poured over their works and thought about that in light of the war, I think their concept of heroism mm. uh, is not our own modern concept of heroism, because the modern concept of heroism, uh, the hero always saves the day by his or her strength, uh, strength of will, um, valor, uh, good looks, and quite often lots of firepower at hand. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Heavy firepower at hand. It is America, and, and we all believe in the Second Amendment over here, right? <laughs> but, Lewis, but Lewis's and Tolkien's uh, stories, uh, that's not the concept of the hero for them. The hero uh, failed, uh, ultimately, to accomplish his goal. If you think about Frodo and the Lord of the Rings, at the end of the day, Frodo fails in his quest. I mean, he just fails, because he puts the ring back on his finger and declares, I'm not going to do the thing I came to do now. The, you know, the ring is mine. Mm. Uh, and the way that the ring is ultimately destroyed, it's not because of Frodo or the Fellowship. It's, it's Gollum who bites off uh, uh, the ring, bites off uh, Frodo's uh, finger that has the ring, and falls into the, into the crack of doom, the fire. And so the, the way that Middle-earth is saved it's not because of Frodo, it's not because of their at risk at the end of the day. It is a sudden and miraculous grace, is the mm. phrase that Tolkien and Lewis use. A sudden and miraculous grace. There's a word that Tolkien developed, uh, the catastrophe, the undoing of a catastrophe. Mm. And it comes from outside of us, not from inside of us, but from the outside. Uh, and, and Lewis is more explicit in his goodness as God. But you see the same theme, in, if you think about it, in the Chronicles of Narnia, because mm-hmm. the children in the last battle uh, at Stable, uh, Stable Hill, it's the Stable, this is the end of the revival, because as far as they know, there is a great source of evil in that Stable, and they're not going to survive it. Mm. But what we learn, and here's the alert for your listeners, <laughs> what we learn in the last battle is that Aslan, the lion, the great Christ figure, has invaded the stable and cast out the demon Tash, and mm. now turned the stable uh, into a portal into Aslan's, Aslan's country. And so th- those children as well, they are saved by miraculous grace. They don't save themselves. So the hero, really, in their stories, yeah, the hero is a product, uh, in part, of his or her choices to choose uh, the other over self and to sacrifice for the other, for the greater good. Uh, to choose the side of good. Uh, but uh, ultimately, the hero is rescued. <laughs> mm. uh, it has to be rescued by a sudden and miraculous grace. Redemption comes from outside of us. It, it, it comes from God himself. And that's a lesson, it seems to me, a, a great part of the, of the sort of strength of both their stories. Awesome. Well, dear listeners, that's all we have time for today. Uh, I've enjoyed this conversation a lot, Dr. Lacanti, and I, I think our listeners will as well. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you, David. Great privilege to be with you. Thanks so much, David. Well, listeners, if you would like to send feedback on this show, you can post them to our blog when the show notes uh, post as this episode is published at uh, christianhumanist.org. You can also send an email to thechristianhumanist at gmail.com or post on our Facebook page. We've been speaking to Dr. Joe Laconte, 
professor, uh, associate professor of history at King's College in New York City, and author of A Hobbit, A Wardrobe, and A Great War, published by Nelson Books. And we'll have a link directly to that book in our show notes. Christian Humanist Profiles is a program on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. Be listening for the next Christian Humanist Profiles.